This is Movie Land with CJ Johnson. Hello and welcome to Movie Land. I'm CJ Johnson. Thank you for joining me. This is the official statement from PricewaterhouseCoopers, the accountancy firm that has handled the Oscar voting for many, many, many years. 83 years. For 83 years, they have handled the Oscar counting and voting and specifically also the Oscar envelopes containing the names of the winners. This is what they said. They've taken full responsibility for breaches of established protocols. Here it is. They said that, uh, this is PricewaterhouseCoopers, confirmed that managing partner Brian Cullinan mistakenly handed the backup envelope for actress in a leading role instead of the envelope for best picture to presenters Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Once the error occurred, protocols for correcting it were not followed through quickly enough by Mr. Cullinan or his partner, and that is referring to Martha Ruiz, his uh, partner at Coopers. They were the two employees charged with managing the envelopes containing the names of the Oscar winners. So they were standing on either side of the stage backstage with two identical briefcases full of two identical uh, envelope groupings containing identical winners cards inside them. This statement added, for the past 83 years, the Academy has entrusted PricewaterhouseCoopers with the integrity of the awards process during the ceremony, and last night we failed the Academy. Now, this comes after the revelations that Cullinan was tweeting photographs from backstage, including a photograph from Emma Stone with her Oscar right before he was meant to give the correct envelope to Warren Beatty. And, of course, that's a breach. You agree not to take photographs and certainly not to take photographs and tweet them from backstage during the Oscar ceremony. So this guy's an idiot, obviously, and really, 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 really failed his job so spectacularly. So, I mean, the biggest, biggest job failure imaginable. It's one of the most watched. It's like the guy charged with putting on the halftime show at the Super Bowl, just pushing a button that meant it couldn't happen. I mean, just so bad. One job to do, sir, as they've been saying all over social media. One job to do. Yes, at 9.05 p.m., Cullinan sent a now-deleted tweet from his personal account that showed fresh off the stage winner Emma Stone smiling with her new Oscar in hand. And he wrote, Best Actress Emma Stone backstage! Exclamation mark! And he hashtagged at PwC for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So he hashtagged his own company while he was totally in breach of everything that they were meant to be doing. So, of course, um, we now know that Moonlight won and not La La Land. It was a really great Oscars. I will talk about it at length with Jim Flanagan on my web TV show, Watch This. You can find that at skippy.tv, S-K-I-P-I dot TV. Look for the episode of Watch This with Jim Flanagan where we discuss the Oscars in depth. That should drop around Thursday or Friday of this week. So by then... Envelope gate, envelope gate will have died down a little bit and we can discuss the other highlights of the show, of which there were many. It was generally a terrific Oscars. I mean, what about that performance of the song from Moana by that 
gorgeous 16-year-old girl who instantly got a job on a, on a television show straight after. And, you know, what about uh, Garcia Bernal, Bernal, you know, the, the lovely diminutive Spanish actor being the first one to be brave enough to go off the teleprompter script and, and talk politics, uh, talk, talk immigration politics. What about the speech made by um, Barry Jenkins and his co-writer of Moonlight? I mean, it was a really lovely Oscars. Jimmy Kimmel handled the whole thing very well. The ongoing joke with Matt Day was terrific. The thing off the bus with the tourists was terrific. It was a great Oscars. Shame that weird thing had to happen. And it all falls down to one guy who should have known better, a partner at the firm that had handled this account for 83 years. One guy being so in love with his handheld device and so in love with celebrity culture which is ludicrous because he's been backstage at the Oscars seeing celebrities all night, that he was taking a photo and tweeting a photo of an actress, all things he should not have been doing, and in doing so distracted himself enough to hand the wrong envelope to a man who then went out on stage and looked really bad in front of a billion people and made a whole whole institution and show and event look bad. And ugh, so embarrassing. Brian Cullinan, you had one job. Anyway, a terrific Australian film is opening this Thursday. It's called Jasper Jones. It's based on the best-selling novel of a few years ago. I am about to give you my interview that I recorded about a week ago with the director and co-writer of the film. The co-writer is also the author of the novel. That's Craig Sylvie, the writer, and Rachel Perkins, the director. This is Bruce Beresford, and you're listening to Movieland. Jasper Jones, the adaptation of the very well-loved Australian novel, opens as a film, a feature film in cinemas on the 2nd of March. It's terrific. I'll give you my review. View, but it is really, really wonderful. I haven't read the book. Uh, I haven't seen the play, <laughs> but I have now seen the film and it's just great. It is directed by Rachel Perkins and the book and the screenplay. Well, the screenplay was co-written by the book's author, Craig Sylvie. Craig and Rachel join me on Movie Land. Thank you very much for coming in. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. I, I'm very excited for the film to open. I, I am going to say right now, not to put too much pressure on it, but besides, I think, it being, I think it'll be very well liked, indeed beloved. I also think it's going to do very well. I predicted this about Lion. Ooh, I said oh, wow. Lion was going to do really, really well in Ooh. this country. And Lion is doing incredibly well in this it country. Is, yes. And I think this will do well too. I think it, it's got the goods for what Australians want in their cinema. Some Australian films, they leave. They just don't even open that door. But some Australian films, they hold close to their heart. And I think they will, this one. So there you go. Well, that is a prediction. And uh, I think it... Um, is if you think so and like you obviously observe films and understand them and know what Australian audiences are like that fills me with great hope but also with fear <laughs> <laughs> I said I'm sorry to do this and I did it um, Craig how was it adapting your novel into the screenplay format I understand from interviews I read with you in the newspapers over the weekend that mm-hmm. this was your first crack at a screenplay yes that's right I, uh, I delved into the deep end uh, how did you do it did you read all the books uh, no, and uh, similarly to, to how I taught myself how to write novels, mm-hmm. um, simply by immersing myself in, in books, uh, I just watched a lot of movies and I read a, a lot of screenplays. Okay, um, and I also had the resources of uh, our development team. So, uh, you know, I could seek out Rachel's assistance when I needed it. I had the producers. And uh, I also had uh, the, the preceding work of uh, the screenwriter, Sean Grant, uh, so I could draw on his wisdom and expertise also. So, um, you know, I was, in a, I was in a good space to, to embark on the screenplay. So, Rachel, Craig, did you discuss 
what you thought in the large sense could go from page to screen before you started writing or did you have a crack Craig at it and then did you sort of talk about what would actually work as a film? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Of that chicken and egg, which came first? I think Craig started from scratch yeah. and wanted to have a go at it just on his own from go to woe. And I think as a writer, you know, you need – the writer needs to be given the space to, to write how it works for them, mm. like anyone. They need to be have the creative – you know, process that will work for them. And that, in this situation, if I can speak on your behalf, was what Craig wanted to do. Obviously, we had uh, the very distilled version that um, Sean Grant had done, which was a big piece of work, distilling the novel down to, you know, a one-and-a-half-hour format. So but was that done – sorry, when was that done in the timeline? That had been done over a couple of years, actually. So I came on into the process when there was already a lot of development had happened. And actually, one of the things I felt was that we'd moved too far away from the book. Ah, okay. Because I'm a very faithful person to – you know, Salman Rushdie says – when you're doing adaptation, the important thing is to hold on to the thing that you loved about the original work. And sure. I felt that we had moved away too far away from that. So a screenplay had been written by Sean Grant that essentially you decided to then go in another way with, with the book's actual author being Craig, but you had this to always refer back to. Yes, that's right. So big, big structural work had been done by, by Sean, but I wanted as the filmmaker, I wanted the the voice and the nuance that Craig Sylvie had in the book to come back to it. How some awesome. of them missed the dialogue we missed and some of the humour and we let go of a little. But I look, no criticism about Sean's work. It's yeah. just this was a process that we all collaborated on. But that is a fantastic concept to bring up because I do believe that that the process of script development can actually take a script way too far away from its source it material can, when it yes. is an adaptation. Yes. And a big big one I believe that happened to is Candy, Luke Davies' screenplay mm-hmm. and and the ultimate film that resulted in his first novel. Mm. I read the first screenplay that he wrote for that way, 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 way back and it was like the novel and the film yeah. that eventuated was so far away from that novel that I felt it was a shame. Mm. Um, it can happen even by it, its own author. <laughs> it, it really can. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I never read the original screenplay of that work, of course, and uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, you get in screenwriting's a funny thing because it is very collaborative and there's all these rules around it, you know, first act, second act, turning point, blah, blah, blah. There's all this film theory. And actually that can draw you down these strange sort of paths that actually possibly aren't the best for the work. Mm. So in, in terms of this adaptation, um, Craig had this quite extraordinary what felt like a number of endings. And ah. in the screenplay, it really felt like that. And I was worried about that because, right. you know, structurally it was unusual. Yeah. Um, and we talked a lot about that. And then I was like, you know what, actually I think this probably is powerful. It's risky. It's very risky what we're proposing to do here in terms of film structure. But let's go for it. Let's do it. We'll take the risk. And, you know, Craig was right. It does have, I think, the end of the film is something like the last 15 minutes is the part that I'm most proud of. I think it's oh. really really exceptionally emotionally charged and um, that's got a lot to do obviously with the characters and the performance but it's actually, you know, Craig's writing and the additional things that we added actually in part of the adaptation. Craig came up with this 
I was about to say a ripper of a scene. Oh, nice. I won't give I'm it away what the scene uh, is, yeah. but it's an incredible thing. And Craig just came up with that idea. You know, I was like, yes, that's gold. Well, I remember saying, yes, that's gold. He remembers it some differently. But anyway, so there's some really great surprises, even though we've stayed true to the book. There's some quite unusual little twists that weren't in there that Craig's added. Yeah, well, the, uh, all of the ending worked for me. The whole movie worked for me. So, Craig, obviously... All novels are longer than the films that mm. come out of them. It, it, mm. It's just the nature of the beast. It's 400 to 800 word, pages versus 90 pages, 98 pages. Right. How did you work to to move it over in terms of... Now, I haven't read the novel, right. but I, I can tell, obviously, from the novel, assuming that you've done a relatively faithful adaptation of your own work, that... There are a lot of themes going on, you mm. know, and the sort of there's a few almost a few genres going on. Like I mm. find in the film, you've got coming of age, you've mm. got mystery, and then you've got the sort of the deep thematic stuff of race relations on two levels in two different branches in a way. Yeah. In in Australia, in a town in the sixties. Yeah. How did you juggle those sort of three elements? And are they I guess I'm wondering, what I'm really wondering is how proportionate are they in terms of the overall pie in mm. regard to the book? Right. Well in terms of proportion, I think it's an interesting point. Um the the the, the novel is told through the perspective of Charlie Buckton. So uh-huh. it's a first person account. And so we see this story through that quite narrow lens. However, an, uh, an opportunity that arose, obviously, with the screenplay is that I could broaden that and I could tell a more objective story about these characters. So, for example, uh, Ruth Buckton, Charlie's mother, played by Tony Collette, yep. um, played brilliantly by Tony Collette, um, was a character that we could expand upon and, and look at differently. In the novel, uh, it's Charlie's account. It's Charlie's 13-year-old account of, uh, of his mother. Right, and so it's never necessarily going to be a fair hearing. You know, yeah, they have yeah. quite a tempestuous relationship. <laughs> yeah. uh, but with the film, we could see her in a much more objective light, and we could uh, paint a broader picture um, uh, and a clearer picture of the, uh, the the factors and the things that are informing the way that she is. And I think she gets a much uh, much richer story in the film. Mm. Um, so that was something that that, uh, in terms of shifting balance, certainly changed with film. I think it's about it's not necessarily a process of of loss. I think it's more about distilling the elements that feel essential. Yep. And for me, I had the great benefit of touring the book for a great period of time and meeting readers and um. and, and learning from them. And so, you know, I got I got third hand accounts of what felt important to people. Um and and just through the process of, of um that kind of wisdom of the crowd, mm. we were permitted to to know what aspects that needed to, to to come through in the adaptation. So then it was just a matter of balancing all those elements. Right. How much, again, Rachel, in terms of distillation, how much then ended up on the cutting room floor? Was there more of the book that is now there? Actually, we were very economical because, you? you know, Australian movie, low budget, you know, reasonably low budget. We had six weeks to shoot this film. So what you need to decide is, you know, what is the absolute, 
you know, necessary scenes because mm. you want to give them the time they deserve. So anything that was sort of additional was cut before we went into production. So I think actually there's only one scene that we cut in wow. the end um, because our, we had a great first assistant director and they were like, do you really need this? So everything is hugely interrogated. Do you really, really, really need this scene? And you have to really agonise and like you think actually no, it right. can go. So it was a very efficient shoot in that way. Well, again, and sorry to, to rip open the Band-Aid on an old wound, but I have to refer <laughs> back to the weekend papers. You said that the, the cricket scene, which mm. is not to give too much away, it's not the climax of the movie, it's not a spoiler, but the cricket scene, according to you in the papers, you guys fought over including. At length, at length. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons, can what I say. What could you now possibly that... have had against the cricket well, look, scene? Now that we are <laughs> ripping the Band-Aid off, I think let's, rip, let's open let's the wound. Raw. Yeah. Um, so, look, the first thing about the cricket scene and I just like to put it on record I always wanted the cricket scene but I just didn't want it to be 25 pages long ah, okay. so it had to that's come a long down. scene you it, was a, no, it wasn't 25 pages long that's right. a massive over exaggeration but it was long yeah. and Craig said look this scene is going to be good just let me write it let me have a crack at it and I'll write it and he did and he wrote it and it was actually read beautifully it was like still five pages long but there was a lot of drama that was happening in between it so um, so he did. He did. He did a good job of writing it. And then, but actually, because we had to shoot it from six different angles, and there was a lot of you know detail in where exactly the ball was going to go and how it would be hit. And really, I don't care about how the ball <laughs> is hit. You didn't want to shoot it. I didn't want to shoot it. So I said, <laughs> Craig. Well, and and it, so the first assistant director was also a cricket fanatic. So we had Craig, critic, cricket fanatic. We had the first AD. And I was like, okay, you two shoot the cricket scene. You can direct it because I don't care. And I will do the drama that happens within the cricket scene. And I'm really pleased with the cricket scene. It's beautiful. It's well, I, great. I know you were on set the whole shoot, which mm. is unusual and rather wonderful. Did you call action on any of that stuff? Did you actually direct that cricket scene a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, yes. Good Between idea. takes, uh, you know, we were setting things up and, and working with Mark Boskell, who's yeah. uh, the first AD, uh, who was a very calming presence, I have to say. Um, and look, I, I'd also, uh, one of my various tasks on set yeah. was to prepare Kevin Long, who plays Jeffrey Liu, mm -hmm. uh, as, as a competent cricketer. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Kevin had never played cricket before. He didn't really understand the game, much like our esteemed director. And, uh, so well, he, he had an interest, though. He did, actually. Whereas I had no interest. Right. Yeah. And right. still has no interest, different. sadly. Yeah. Uh, but it's a good scene. It works. It I'm does. Pleased. It works great. But By I, the way, just in case you ever get this <laughs> weird opportunity again, you can put the ball in in post. That could have all just been an effect. Well, we did do that. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. See, you were fooled. That's yes. how well it works. Yeah, I was yeah, That's fooled. good to know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I was coaching Kevin. Uh, I taught him the art of uh, of cricketing stroke play and every uh, spare yeah. hour we had, we were down at the Nets in Pemberton and, uh, you know, I was teaching the art of cricket. So that day I was I was uh, like a proud dad on the sidelines, you know, nice. cheering my boy on. He was, uh, and he was uh, just astonishing. He was absolutely fantastic. Now, Kevin, I understand from the production notes, not only amateur cricketer, but amateur thespian. Like this was his first acting role. Yes. A and mm. whereas, please say the young ladies. And Gowrie. Gowrie, yeah. And Gowrie and Levi have both been in major, major, major Hollywood productions. Mm. That must have been yeah. an interesting dynamic. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it was, I, I remember the way uh, it first started, actually, just th thinking about the cricket training. So films start in very small ways often, you know, and then they grow into these massive beasts with 60 people and cranes and everyone running around. But the first thing we did 
was that Craig took Kevin Long down to the nets, the cricket nets, <laughs> nice. and they started throwing balls around and I took a few photos and I was like, okay, here's where we begin, mm. which was very nice. But he was discovered, Kevin was discovered at a, um, a kung fu class out in the western suburbs of Sydney and uh, our fantastic casting agent, Anusha Zarkish, has this talent of just finding these unknowns. She found Aaron McGrath as well, who played, uh, she found him for us when she cast with us Redfern now, and then she was very committed to bringing him into the movie. Um, so she discovers this talent. And often what you're doing when you're casting a non-actor, you're casting someone who's very similar to the character. Right. And they almost play themselves. Right. And especially for a kid, you know, like a young person, they, they're playing themselves, so it comes very naturally. And I think Kevin Long was, in fact very much like the character in that he was very positive, like the eternal optimist, mm. the eternal try. I mean, you actually probably fell in love with him, didn't you, Craig? Oh, I fell in love with all way. our kids, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, they just felt like family by mm. by the end of the shoot. You know, they're, they're all remarkable kids. They're all uh, just emotionally mature, very, very thoughtful. Um, they're just all sweethearts. Uh, you know, I, I, I came to really admire them. But Can yeah, I, so we but, did. Have, but we did have a mix of skills. To your question, sorry, we had you know, we had someone who'd never acted before with these actors who'd come off massive green screen, you know, massive productions, and you know, working with the best Hollywood actors. So, yeah. but they never, they never behaved like that. They never, you know, made that a obvious demarcation between them. It was a very. We had four weeks rehearsal all together. Craig was with us, and we just bonded like a little unit. That's interesting that you mentioned the green screen thing because um, obviously Levi had green screen work to do in Pan. And one thing I noticed about his performance, I'm not saying this in comparison to the others or relative to the others, not at all, but just I noticed about his performances, Charlie, is that there are reaction shots of him, silent reaction shots that are mind-bogglingly good. And I can imagine that doing green screen work would help you with that because you're reacting to nothing. <laughs> you're right. reacting to, to you know, the classic tennis ball on a stick props. And he is really good at reacting to stuff when the camera's just focusing on him. He really is. He, he's constantly acting. Like some actors, when they haven't got a line, they just, their face, you know, they just yeah. drop and they turn into a wooden block. Yeah. He is constantly in character and constantly performing. And in fact... Actually, he doesn't get that much dialogue so right. because he's often listening to things and experiencing things and observing things. So it's, it's often a quite an internal performance. But, yes, I agree. He, and that's why we cast him because his face is so expressive. He's so expressive. Mm. And he can, he can go from, you know, terror to anger and he's got that whole range that he can just – do um, mm. and and that's all he wants to do he just wants to act right no, he's, yeah. he's going to There's no, and he, yeah. and if so he far, wants to he he's yes, got it in the can and so far he has been and he yeah. is continuing to yeah. do mm. so mm. now i as i say once again i have to say i haven't read the book but it's intriguing for the title of a film to when it is a name to not be the name of the protagonist right and now that you tell me that the book is told in the first person of charlie that makes more sense to me that the book is called jasper jones right because hi i'm charlie one night jasper jones knocked on my window yes whereas if the book didn't exist and you went to see this film you'd be surprised that it was called jasper jones considering right. that charlie is in every scene and jasper jones is hardly in every scene right right was Jasper more central in the book or I mean you would never going to rename it obviously no, no. because the book is famous right and you know you need the book's name to to sell the film but it, it is odd now that the name of the film is 
I don't even know if Jasper's necessarily even the antagonist. He's almost, you know... Right, you know? but he is, and it's an interesting question, uh, and, and well put. Um, he, he's not an antagonist, but uh, he is a catalyst. Yeah. You know, he, uh, Jasper might not be there uh, all that often in terms of screen time or even in terms of, uh, you know, percentage of scenes in, in the novel either, right. but he infuses every scene. Uh, you know, he's there, he's a presence, and uh, he is the element that shakes Charlie Buckton's uh, life up uh, in, in an irreparable way. Um, and so this is a story that's centrally about coming of age. This is the moment where Charlie Buckton uh, uh, emerges from the, that pr- protective sphere of childhood and enters the adult world uh, in a, an entirely unprepared way. And uh, Jasper is is the element that, that pushes him out of that and is the person who has to challenge all those preconceptions. And so in many respects, in terms of the development and change of Charlie Buckton, uh, in terms of understanding what this town is, he is by far the most important character. And he is very elemental. He's mysterious. I mm. don't believe we know anything close to getting to know what his age is. And the actor Aaron McGrath, he sort of... He could be many different ages, I suppose, especially the way you've shot him. Um, I We don't ever see Dad, even though Dad is mentioned. There's mm-hmm. a lot about him that remains mysterious. We don't ever see his home, do we? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's I think that's functional in yeah. terms of our story. You know, we don't want to know too much about Jasper. In fact, I, I, I want our audience to kind of uh, hanker to see more of him. You know, I want to, you know, sort of dangle that possibility a, a, a little more. I, I think he's really functional in that regard. Rachel, finally, just in terms of post-production for the film, obviously you had these elements that add up to something quite mythic and epic. And, you you know, you've got this coming of age thing. You've got a socio statement element going on and you've got this mystery. And then you've got, you know, the ideas to play with in terms of music and editing. How did you nudge those elements finally, do you feel? Or to put it another way, if you had to end up placing it in one shelf at the mythological video store, you know, did you push the mystery? Did you, how did you, basically the same question I asked Craig, but on the other side of it, how did you balance those elements tonally? Look, I think, you know, people talk a lot about tone in films and often you find films that are one tone, right. you know, like a romantic comedy is often... You know, it's comic yeah. and it's romantic and or, you know, a mystery is just that. This has a number of tones and that's why I was really attracted to it because mm. you have to go in and out of tone and the tonal shifts are often risky. But I love that because it's really challenging as a filmmaker to try and shift in and out of these different tones. And, and indeed for the cast, because, for instance, Eliza, uh, played by Angari Rice, so she's carrying this very dark secret mm. and guilt but at the same time, she is having this budding romance. <laughs> so this sort of dimension, these two dimensions that she inhabited, and that's sort of like the work. It goes out of into fun, from fun boyhood and jokes with Jeffrey Lou back into carrying the weight of this murder, you know, yeah. and, and their involvement in it. So, you know, tr- so I think it should sit on a number of shelves in the <laughs> DVD shop, and that would give it best exposure to an audience as yeah. well. Um, I think it should sit on the Australian classics section. <laughs> yeah. I oh, think I think it, it should, will. Don't I think worry. it should sit on the mystery drama section. I think it should sit in the children's young people section. I think it should sit in the comedy section, and 
I think it should sit just at the front where you pay <laughs> yeah. so that you can have like a last minute, oh, I should get that too, do yeah. you think? Let's, oh, just, yeah. let's just quickly talk about that children's section. I mean, obviously, as you say, uh, her character carries a dark secret and something is shown in the first 10 minutes, which made me go, oh, okay, cool. They're going to show us that. So then where do you pitch this film in terms of kids? Like what would you say is the youngest a child should be to go see this film at the cinema? I think, you know, above 12, right. I would say. Um, and did you have a sort of 13-year-old viewer in mind when you were putting it together, conceiving it? Well, certainly the book um, is on the national curriculum for high school students. Right. And, and yes, there's some really tough issues in, this, in, this, in, this, in the book and in the film. Um, but young people go through those things. Yeah, absolutely. They experience domestic violence. They experience racism. They experience all those things. Like they're sophisticated young people. This is... There's a great a great feedback that I got from the film the other night. Someone sent me an email of, of, that came from someone else and it was a parent saying, so last night we went to the film and on the way back in the car, this father took his four kids and they had a discussion about racism, sexism, you know, liberation. And, you know, it started this conversation and he said it was such a relief because usually it's like Facebook and Instagram. And here were myself and my children talking about these very real issues for them. So... You know, essentially, that's a great thing. If you can be entertained and have a great night out, but then actually talk about the world and your place in it and how you understand it, that's that's a bloody great outcome, I think. You don't need Boffo, B.O. or four-star reviews now. You've got that. You <laughs> always have that. I mean, you got a dad to talk about all those things with his yeah. parents. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think the essential thing is that it's fun, you know, this yeah. film. And I've it always wanted to push that fun. because people do try and push it into this you know, social issue, Aboriginal thing. I'm like, yes, but actually it transcends all of that. It's a bloody great night out at the movies. It's a great Australian story. People love it. So far they've loved the film in a sort of strange and powerful ways. So, yeah, we're yep. pleased. Congratulations, guys. And Thank you so um, much. I look forward to it hitting the cinemas and, and, and heading towards that Australian classic status. <laughs> Rachel Perkins has directed it. Craig Sylvie has co-authored the screenplay based on his own novel. They've joined me on Movie Land. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, that was fun. You're listening to Movie Land on ABC Local Radio, digital right, so and online. Let's have a review of Jasper Jones. Well, it combines many familiar elements of Australian cinema in a fresh and thrilling way. It's completely engrossing, surprising and moving and obviously made with great care and love. Charlie, played by Levi Miller, who's already played Peter Pan in 2014's Pan, which was this big Hollywood movie, is a bookish, erudite young teenager living in a small town in Western Australia in 1969. One night, another young fellow, the mysterious Indigenous Jasper Jones, knocks on his window and beckons him to follow him into the woods, where he shows him and us something startling. From this truly gripping opening, the story expands and deepens, becoming a coming-of-age tale, a mystery, a period drama of small-town Australian life, a romance, and an examination of race. It's got a truly dark edge, but it's also laced with truthful humour. Levi Miller is astonishing. What an actor, and all of 14 years old. He seems perfect for Charlie and can convey in a silent reaction shot a roiling emotional depth. 
I was quite floored by his performance. As the girl he sort of has his sights on, Eliza, Anguri Rice is also excellent. She was the daughter in last year's The Good Guys, so she and Miller both already have big studio on-set experience. That's not the case at all for Kevin Long, as I alluded to in my interview. Playing Charlie's best friend, he was discovered, as Rachel said, by a casting director, the casting director at his martial arts school. He's never acted before, and his amateurism, I'm afraid, is quite apparent next to those two young professionals. But it oddly kind of works for his character, who's a quirky, optimistic, enthusiastic oddball. Aaron McGrath plays Jasper with both gravitas and mystery. It's a tough role because Jasper is metaphorically laden down. He's the title character, for example, despite not being the protagonist, as we said in the interview. But McGrath keeps it simple and lets what other characters say about him deal with the film's heaviest thematic lifting. Tony Collette really stands out among the adults as Charlie's mum, Ruth. She's a smart actor and can identify roles with hidden depths, and Ruth is a cracker. Complicated, sexual, combustible, compassionate, fierce, and funny. Colette brings out her every dimension, nailing every moment, every line, every look. I imagine her copy of the novel sitting on her chair on set, dog-eared, cracked at the bind, and covered on every page with scrawled, handwritten notes. In a small but vital role, Hugo Weaving is also compelling. The immense popularity of the novel will definitely help sell this excellent film. It's also on most Australian school syllabi, but the marketing would otherwise be tricky. On its surface, the film appears to be a straightforward coming-of-age period piece. It's so much more than that, but to reveal anything else immediately begins to undermine the movie's secrets. Go discover them for yourself. They are worth it. There you go. Jasper Jones. I'm going to give you one more review of a film out in cinemas, I think pretty much worldwide at the moment, and that is T2 Train Spotting. It certainly just opened in Australia. Talk about getting the band back together. T2 Train Spotting, the title, by the way, according to director Danny Boyle, evolved out of speculation about what the characters themselves would want the film to be called is a thoroughly justifiable late sequel that honours the original impeccably. I got way more than I was expecting. Indeed, half a day later, I am still floored. It's as though Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, Johnny Lee Miller and Robert Carlyle have been getting together in character in Edinburgh once a month since the original groundbreaking train spotting, or that their characters Renton, Spud, Sick Boy and Begbie have simply been alive since then. So true, consistent, authentic and well-conceived are these 20-year-later performances. Like in real life, these people have changed, but they've also stayed the same. The plot isn't particularly important, but involves the four reconvening in Edinburgh around Sick Boy's lonely and unprofitable pub, which he inherited from an auntie. None of them are happy with what Renton, McGregor, did two decades ago, but Begbie, Carlyle, is particularly pissed off. This film is hysterically funny. A set piece about halfway through involving a bit of robbery is a masterpiece of building, rolling, cascading comic storytelling, combining visual, oral, narrative, meta, scenic, verbal, physical and intellectual gags told with absolute precision. Doyle has lost none, not a single jot, of his wild stylistic imagination, deploying dreamscapes, visual metaphors, unbelievably perfect snatches of song, different stocks and grains, miniature cameras, human-scale VFX, and plenty of footage from the original film to tie them together perfectly in tone, structure, style, and feel. Train spotting inspired a million imitators, but there has never been a film that captured its unique energy 
until this one. It feels wrong, cheap, to call T2 a sequel. It is a fully realised, artfully motivated catch-up with beloved characters from one of the undeniable classics of cinema. You'll need to have seen the original to make sense of this one and to love it immediately, as I did. It may sound grandiloquent, but it is Doyle, McGregor, Bremner and Carlyle's best work for 20 years. That is T2 Trainspotting out in cinemas now. Thank you for joining me. I'm CJ Johnson. This has been Movie Land. Read all my written reviews at filmmafia.com.au. Watch our Oscars wrap-up with Jim Flanagan on Skippy TV. That's skippy.tv. And make sure you see a movie at the cinemas this weekend. Take care.